We are going to blaze through one verse today. We're going to blaze through one verse. I didn't intend to blaze through one verse because I, I have several on the scripture sheet. And then I started reading the one of them and I'm thinking, this is, is so full of good stuff. So I'm just, fair warning, I think it's all relevant, may not be, I don't know. I was drinking a lot of coffee at this point. But Lord, let's pray. Father God, you are beautiful and wonderful, just like that song said. And you do have a strong hand. And nothing escapes your gaze. Nothing escapes your notice. And nothing interferes with your plan. And in that we rejoice. Father, teach us that the most important thing to us is your glory. Because then regardless of the circumstances of life, we realize at some point you will receive glory for that. And may we learn to grow excited about that, even if it's not convenient for us. And we see this, by the way, in these scriptures that we'll get to at some point about Jesus going to the cross. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we just trust you today that your message will come forth and it will be received and you will bless people for hearing it. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say also that we've had the privilege in the last few weeks of seeing some people we hadn't seen for a while. It's so good to have you back. Uh, it's just wonderful that you're here. And some, some new folks that are, that are courageous and have continued to uh, be here as long as God has them here. But we, just, we love having uh, some of, our, some of our, uh, our old folks, not in age, but uh, come back with us so, and the new folks as well. <clears throat> it's exciting for us. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read some scripture for you. And then we'll get into the study. This scripture, I believe, is on your scripture sheet. There's going to be a little bit from Luke, and then there's going to be something from Hebrews should be on there as well. But we'll read through this to maybe get the, the big picture. Luke 22, beginning with the verse 14, says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, this is the second cup that is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. So the goal this morning is for us to get kind of a big picture of what this means that Jesus and his apostles have entered the upper room for the final time. It's not always been the same upper room. It's been different rooms. But this particular Passover is much different. 
and Jesus knows how different it is. The rest of the uh, of the company does not realize how important this Passover is compared to the others, but they will soon find out. So the goal is to get the big picture of what is taking place here. As a little bit of a review to get us there emotionally and and um, being able to maybe see some things with our mind's eye, the Passover was celebrated the day before unleavened bread celebration. So you had the Passover, and then you had seven days of unleavened bread. And in those seven days of unleavened bread, you were supposed to totally cleanse your house from any leaven whatsoever. And it was to take people back to the time when they exited Egypt. And uh, we, we can say more about that, but not right now. Um, we have, uh, coming up on the 29th of December, our communion service. We will go back, and everything I'm not explaining to you now, we will go back then. And it's very fascinating about the Passover. So we're just kind of touching on this right now, but we're going to really focus on one particular verse. We also pointed out last week that the Passover was celebrated at two different times. The northern kingdom celebrated Passover from sunrise to sunrise. Southern kingdom celebrated Passover from sunset to sunset. And that accomplished a couple of things. One is the two kingdoms didn't get along very well. And so one kingdom was <clears throat> preparing the lambs and for, for their Passover, and the other kingdom was waiting until sunset to begin that. Uh, now, there was a time there where they kind of mixed together, and sometimes that's, that's significant, sometimes it is. It just depends, depends on what you read and from which author. But the two kingdoms were divided, and um, uh, the one thing that is important is it fulfills the prophecy uh, exactly when Jesus began to celebrate Passover. So at this point, we also learned last week that Satan is frantically trying to derail this whole thing. Satan is not behind Jesus going to the cross at this point. He couldn't have cared less if he went to the cross before or after. As a matter of fact, he probably rejoiced in the cross, not because it derailed God's plan, but because he would have rejoiced because of the agony of Jesus. That's the kind of rejoicing the enemy does. So Satan is frantically trying to derail this whole thing. And the reason he's trying to derail it is because prophecy is being fulfilled at an alarming speed. He is not so much concerned that Jesus might be crucified as, as when. So what is Satan's plan? Well, think about this. As we stated last week, if one single prophecy were to go unfulfilled, then Jesus would not and could not be the Messiah. And in... Satan's small mind, at the very least, he could have disrupted the plan of the Messiah as long as he didn't fulfill that prophecy. So if you are God's enemy, all you really have to do is interfere enough in these events to either preempt or delay the moment of the crucifixion. Once again, much of this comes down to timing. If you remember last week, we talked about Jesus appointing John and Peter to go and prepare the Passover. And he did this privately because there was a spy in their midst. And he didn't want Judas to know 
where they would be because the leadership was trying to find out, find out where they were at night so they could arrest him. And Judas had already said, I will turn him over into your hands. I will find the moment. We, you can do this privately. It is important to remember that God is not frantic. He's accomplishing His will. And He's not frantic. We should not picture God seated upon His throne, wringing His hands with beads of perspiration on His proverbial forehead, as if He is seated across a chessboard from a chess master, And he's trying to figure out Satan's moves. It's not it at all. Satan is frantic. God is not frantic. God is proactive. What is about to take place is in accordance with God's sovereign will. God knows all things. God controls all things. Satan is reactive. He has long since been reduced to hustling and manipulating people as best he can. Have you ever met a hustler? I could I could say, make so many statements that would get me in so much trouble because I've probably been a hustler in the past. You know what a hustler is? It's someone who wants something really badly and they'll do anything to make it happen. And that is kind of the personality that you can become a hustler in that. Satan has long since been reduced to hustling and manipulating people as best he can. He trusts no one. He has no trustworthy allies. His only two tools are lies and deception. He has no power. He has no control of the past or the future. He can't even read your mind. You know, the only way Satan knows what you're going to do is if you say it or you telegraph it. He has no idea what you're thinking right now. We give Satan far too much credit. Satan is suspicious of everyone. In his eyes, everyone is unreliable and unpredictable. Everyone... That is, except God. And therein lies his problem. Satan knows that he can depend upon God to always be God. God will always do what he promises. Satan can look at the promises of God, and Satan knows that those promises are going to come true. He can count on that. He can count on nothing else. So let's let that sink in for a moment. Satan knew and still knows that God keeps his word And God never changes. And this prophecy is coming together at an alarming rate. He knows knows what his future holds, where he will spend eternity, and he's trembling with fear. Also, Satan knows he is unredeemable. Let that sink in for a moment. What's your hope? What is our hope? People who don't even know Jesus hope that someone will extend mercy and grace to them when it really counts. People who know Jesus know our hope is in Christ and he has extended grace and mercy. So let's let's let this sink in for a moment. Satan knows he's unredeemable. His first rebellion was his final rebellion. Because his first rebellion was unforgivable. Now think about that. So if you're Satan and you know you're unredeemable and you know you're unforgivable, what does that do to you? Well, Satan lives within his rebellion. 
That's where he lives. How about you? Are you choosing to live within your rebellion? Have you taken up residence in your flesh again? I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. If you're a true believer, you cannot lose your salvation because salvation is in the hands of Jesus, but you can certainly choose to live in your rebellion. Do you find more comfort in your sin than in the presence of Christ? Do you have more things in common with your culture than you do with believers? What does your calendar reveal about who your first love is? See, those are all really good guilt things, aren't they? But it's so true, right? So on with our scripture for this morning. Jesus is anticipating being arrested on this night. The Passover meal has been prepared by Peter and John. And then we read the following in Luke twenty-two fourteen. He says this, and when the hour came, get this, and when the hour came, the hour, not the time, not the day, not the season, not Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, once again, we are reminded that Jesus always knew the hour of his betrayal. And as a side note, Jesus had just shared on Mount Olivet some amazing things with his disciples, his apostles. And you can find those things in 14th, uh, 13th chapter of Mark and the 24th and 25th chapters of Matthew. That's on your scripture sheet also. Now we find ourselves in an upper room in Jerusalem with Jesus, 11 disciples, and one devil. He is concluding his time on earth and facing the cross. They enter the room, and the first thing that we receive from every account of this, the first thing they did was they reclined at table. Now, traditionally, people would lie upon some kind of a pillow. The table was maybe just a couple of inches, a few inches off the floor. With one elbow, lean on the pillow with one elbow, facing the table, and your feet are out behind you as far from the table as you can get your stinky feet. Because they were stinky feet back then. They were very unclean. You didn't go home and hop in the shower. And Jesus makes a following startling statement. And this is the scripture we're going to spend the rest of our time. Luke twenty two fifteen says this, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It doesn't seem so startling at first glance. However, as we look carefully at this statement, it would become somewhat apparent that Jesus was kind of speaking in code and giving them the big picture of what was about to take place. So the first thing we notice is this statement is divided into two distinct parts. The first part expresses to them how important it is that he is with them at this time. And the second thing, the second part is that this Passover is different than the other Passovers. So the first part of the big picture is, number one, if you like outlines. 
The Passover with which they are familiar is coming to an end. Think about the significance of that. The Passover with which they are familiar. The Passover where they draw comfort, where their heritage is, where their spiritual heritage is, where their national heritage is. And they get together every year. It's a giant 4th of July celebration mixed with the fact that the God of the universe calls them by name, called them out of slavery, and gave them this land. That is all coming to an end. How did he say that? Well, we're going to get into that. Passover, with which they are familiar, is uh, coming to an end. There are three things within this part of the Scripture that are worth noting. A. Jesus chose to spend his final hours with his apostles. Again, maybe not so startling. But listen again to uh, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus has chosen these 12 men to be with him in his final hours. They are the same 12 men that began his ministry with him, his earthly ministry with him, and whom God, he said this to God. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. How important are these twelve men? They are so important. He said to God, I have done, I have kept them safe. The twelve men in that room will hear amazing things and receive invaluable instructions that would be necessary for them to be able to carry the gospel of Christ to the world. They will receive an unthinkable object lesson, and we know this as foot washing. We'll get into that on the 29th. Jesus, the Son of God, the pure, sinless, holy, blameless, washes the feet. Of his apostles. And one was so outraged. He said, I will not let you do this. Remember who this is? Simon Peter, one of my favorites. He, they're going to learn this unthinkable object lesson in humility, and they will remain unaware until after the resurrection that they were in the presence of their long awaited Messiah. For three years, they were in the presence of their Messiah. And they're in this room with him tonight, and it's a special night. That can sound like us too, right? God chose us just like he chose his disciples. If you've, if you've uh, repented and received Christ, he's chosen you. And yet we remain woefully unaware of the magnitude of his glory, his holiness, his justice, and his compassion, mercy, and grace. We're in the presence of Messiah. And the second thing worth noting, first one is... He spent the final hours with his apostles. The second one is Jesus made this statement with great passion. He said to them, I have earnestly desired. Now, this is the strongest language possible in the Greek. Stay with me. In the Greek language, these two words have almost an identical meaning. Earnestly and desire, epithumia, and the other one is epithumeo. 
and you're going, we don't really care necessarily about this. But you will. Epithemia means craving, longing. Epithemeo means desire for what is forbidden and lust. Interesting choice of words, don't you think? Especially the last two words. A desire for what is forbidden and lust. This is the kind of emotion that leads mortal man into sin. This is the kind of emotion that inflicted King David on the roof of his palace when he observed the beauty of Bathsheba. This is a kind of emotion that can carry one away to where reason is lacking. Why would he use these words? Here's a reminder. We must remember that this emotion, epithumia, was once pure and beautiful until sin entered Adam. This passion was originally meant to honor God in the most extreme way where you get lost in your lust for the holiness in the person of God. But because of sin, it's come to describe sin, epithumia. And this is what he said. If, if we read it in Greek, he would have said, therefore, epimathia, Christ is experiencing without the influence of sinful nature. His longing or desire is under the absolute authority of pure holiness. But there's an important point we have to think about here. Earnestly and desire mean the same thing. So this is what he's saying. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. He's saying, I epimathia, epimathio, to eat this Passover with you. It's very strong. The disciples would have noticed these unique words, by the way, as Christ spoke them back to back. Here's our translation. I really, 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 really want this. That's our translation. To the point that I'm willing to send for it. That's what this translation is. I really want this, even if I have to send to get it. Of course, that's not what Jesus was saying, because he's holy. I have longed for this time with you. To the point I'm consumed by it. New Living Translation says it this way, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you. The message says this, you've no idea how much I have looked forward to eating this Passover with you. They both fail in meaning. There's one more important thing found in this brief scripture. I said as I was halfway through, preparing it. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. This one. If I had been one of the apostles and astutely aware of every word Christ was saying at the time, which I would not have been, I might have asked, what do you mean you have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with us? What makes this Passover so special? Huh. Past tense makes a lot of difference. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. 
Jesus may have responded, I've already told you why this, this Passover is special, had you been listening, because we do indeed find the answer in verse 15. Let's read the whole verse. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, what, before I suffer. He's talking about the cross. Before I suffer. Now put this together. Ethimathea, ethimathio. To spend this time with you before the cross. And the third thing we notice in this scripture is letter C. He is alerting them to his approaching time of suffering. So I probably forgot a letter. Letter A is Jesus chose to spend his final hours with his apostles. Letter B is Jesus made this statement with great passion. Letter C is he is alerting them to his approaching time of suffering. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Also notice that desire is past tense. Why is this important? Because God is saying to them and us that of all the previous Passovers, they have all been pointing to this Passover. This is the Passover that God ordained from the beginning of time to be the final Passover because a new Passover, a better Passover, a more powerful Passover, the perfect Passover was about to take place. Where where did this Passover take place? In In the room of communion? No, on the cross. That's the final Passover. That's the final time sin passes over us. Forever. So we paraphrase, from the beginning I have longed to eat this Passover with you because this is the final Passover before I go to the cross. How could Jesus have been longing for this time of suffering? Doesn't he know what's coming? Of course he knows what's coming. That's what makes us so special. That's that's what excites him. Because what excites Jesus is different than what excites us. How could Jesus have been longing for this time of Passover? Because the cross represents the ultimate sacrifice of God through the suffering of his son to take away our sins for his glory. That's what Jesus was excited about. That's why he was anticipating it. He knew your name. Still does. So the first thing Jesus says is a Passover with which you are familiar is coming to an end. And we have those three points. And the second thing he says, a new Passover is coming. Luke twenty two fifteen is proclaiming that Jesus is going to the cross and in so doing will become the new and final Passover lamb. Now, they did not understand this. But they will begin to understand it soon. Jesus said, the reason I'm telling you these things is because so you can look back on my suffering and my death and you will remember these lessons. Every one of us is now looking back on the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the Bible before us to help us understand these things. The apostles were experiencing this in real time. The question might be, do we understand it 2,000 years later? Do we live like we understand it? 
So before a new covenant can be established, the old covenant must be done away with. So just the way it works. The author of Hebrews deals with it this way. In Hebrews 8.13, he says this, In speaking of a new covenant, and he's talking about Jesus, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It makes me feel old. It's going to come a time when I'm going to become obsolete. And growing old, er, and I'm going to vanish. So that's the way with the old covenant. It's going to vanish. Whereas the old covenant was based upon the law of God, which demanded a yearly sacrifice of animals, the new covenant based upon God's grace and the one-time perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Whereas the Old Covenant was administered by priests who were imperfect and sinful, the high priest of the New Covenant is whom? Jesus Christ. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest. He's the king. With these wonderful things in mind, I would like to close our time this morning by reading from the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Because I thought about, let's compare the old and the new covenant. And what I found out is the, the Bible says it better than I do. So you have that on your scripture sheet. Be very little commentary as we go through this. Hebrews 10, 1 says this, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, meaning the Old Covenant, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Sacrifices were woefully, they were unfit. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there, are, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. You made me human so I could be the sacrifice. 100% God, 100% human. Have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings? You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. What an amazingly beautiful, powerful scene that must have been in heaven. God is grieving the sin of Adam. And his son steps up and says, I'll do it. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I am in Christ, he is in me, together in God. For we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, seated with Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Now, you may run out of time, run out of space for Scripture here, but I'm going to go on for a few more, okay? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places of the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Our sacrifice is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, the day drawing near. See, this is what Jesus knew when he walked into the upper room and he reclined at table. And he looked at Judas and he looked at the other 11. He said, you have no idea what this night means. You have no idea what's going to take place here tonight. And you want to know when the old covenant ended and when the new covenant began? It took about five seconds. It is finished. And the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies was exposed to all. I think for most of us, the reason we struggle with sin is because the God we worship is too small. For some reason, we have a view of 
Jesus Christ as a Hollywood actor who is emotionless and passionless. And then we have too high of a view of sin. Small view of God, view of God, high view of sin. A better way of saying that is a high view of man. And there is no hope unless God has called you to pay close attention to him either this morning or a previous time. And he's brought you face to face with your sin. And he's helped you understand that there is one way, only one way, that true hope is even in your world. And it's not through what we can do. By the way, when Jesus said it was finished, everything ended in the Old Testament. Ceremonies, feasts, sacrifices. He said it's all gone. It's all done. How do we relate to that? A friend of mine once said, some of us have a hard time loving God because we're having an affair with the church. Church can't save you. Traditions cannot save you. Christmas cards can't save you. It's just Jesus.